Hello everyone, you're listening to the Blockchain Socialist Podcast, and this is another installment of Overthrowing the Network State, a series that I've been doing in collaboration with BlockchainGov. And for this episode, I have actually a double-double, I'm realizing. I have two people on, each of them have had one episode before where I've spoken to them. Uh, my co-host will be Kelsey Nabin, who is a researcher at BlockchainGov, and we're going to be talking to Quinn DuPont. Uh, another researcher who has recently, you gave a talk, uh, I think it was the uh, Trusted Seed Unconference, where you gave some of your sort of like initial criticisms and feedback about the network states to this group. Um, so I really want to talk about that since there's a lot of uh, things that you had mentioned there that were really interesting and that, of course, I, I agreed with. And then you've also written a piece uh, fairly recently or an article titled A Progressive Web 3 from Social Co-Production to Digital Polycentric Governance. So we will cover that as well. But so to start off, what I wanted to ask uh, you, Quinn, is because you're a historian of technology and in the network state, Balaji, like kind of what he does, in, in my view at least, is that he kind of does like, I think like 80% of the book is sort of an attempt at recounting and reinterpreting history largely through, in my opinion, a kind of like Silicon Valley venture capitalist lens. So I was wondering, you know, with your uh, knowledge as a historian, do you have any um, thoughts on, I guess, that type of framework when looking at history that, that he does? And what are kind of the more problematic things in the book? Yeah, thanks. And hi, both. Um, it's, it's great to be to be back here. Uh, you're talking about chapter two of the network state, which um, like any book that's been appropriately edited is, uh, like 10 times the length of every other chapter. <laughs> so, um, and that chapter it's, so it's, I mean, it's called history's trajectory. And I think there's like a, I mean, just in general, talking about the network state is very frustrating because, um, it, it's, it's hard to sort of take it seriously, but uh, I'll do my best and I'll try to see what I can kind of pull out of it. And, and I guess like the first thing to sort of, um, reflect on is before even I get into the positive, I would say the positive account that Balaji offers of this notion of history as trajectory. Um, maybe it's helpful just to step back a little. You suggested it's kind of kind of like the Silicon Valley venture capital modality. I think that's sort of right, but I think we can actually even do, we can go a little further and we can actually frame um Balaji's interest in a very particular mode of scholarship uh, that arose in, um, in the mid 20th century. So roughly maybe post-war, post-Second World War, up to roughly maybe about the 1970s. So 1950s to 1970s, <clears throat> there was two um, big trends that were happening in uh, political science and maybe sociology, but really political science. And, and the first is uh, basically, sometimes it's called, called like modernization theory. Um, it goes back to people like Durkheim and, and you know, sort of classical sociologists, um, even people like Marx and Smith and all these sorts of folks. And um, and it kind of, the, the challenge of modernization theory sort of tackles is this question about like, why are some countries doing well and some are not doing well, right? And then this mantle gets picked up um, again, by people like Emmanuel Wallerstein, 
who is associated with what's called world systems theory. And, you know, I would just encourage readers to sort of maybe even just go like check out Wikipedia or whatever in world systems theory and it'll give you like a pretty reasonable sense of what it's all about and some of the criticisms. But one of the main criticisms, and I think the kind of like where this account really falls down is world systems theory is particularly designed to make analyses of core countries and periphery countries. And in doing so, it strongly reinforces um, core countries. It strongly reinforces the sort of our analytical lens on them. And it tries to explain basically why periphery countries are, you know, struggle and core countries do well. It tries to explain things like extractive measures. You know, why does the United States go over to, you know, pick random country somewhere else and, you know, presumably does its capitalist thing. Um, all of these are claims that are like, uh, well, system theory is, has, has its virtues. It has its um, some, some benefits, but all of it is like, let's just call it what it is. It's 70 year old political theory. Like Balaji's grandparents probably could offer us a better account of the network state, having never seen a computer than Balaji, just because he's so powerfully swayed by this. And I, this is my reading anyways, because I can't explain any other reason why he'd have such an incredible interest in centering the nation state. He claims that he's trying to get to this nation or this, this network state. He's trying to move it out of the way. But I mean, he even says, he says, he says, like, what is one of the main things that the network state needs to do is it needs to um, be seen as, um, uh, what's the term he uses here now? It's um, basically not legitimate, but rather um, it needs to have a, a, a bureaucratic um, attachment uh, to, and, 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 to, you know, establish nation states, right? And, and this just seems like, like, I just don't understand the motivation why if we're trying to, you know, if we're being radicals or even just reformists here, why we need to go back and, you know, come to the nation state asking permission to be um, seen as representative or legitimate or some way real. Um, I think there's just so many other options today. And and, and, I'm, and I'm happy to kind of like, like we can get into that. And um, for me, one of the big ones, he says right at the beginning, he says, look, DAOs aren't, uh, they're not network states. And I would have thought like that would have been a, a really good place to start to think about um, how, how a network state might develop or something like this, right? At the very least, we need to come up with an account of like um, organic production. Like where does this stuff come from, right? Uh, Blagy's account just sort of assumes that people have some intrinsic motivation for this, Um but that's where we're left at. And we're at left at this really very high superficial level. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I can say more about the kind of, I could even go through and pick apart the actual claims um, in, in, in that long chapter too. But um, I think that's sort of its fundamental uh, limiting constraint is that it's stuck in political theory from 70 years ago. Interesting. Yeah. I think one of the things that's um, it's like, there's this obsession with trying to project like a particular future i get the feeling or like that there's this like um automatic like yes this is going to happen and this is how it's going to evolve <clears throat> and he just needed like 
uh, I don't know. I, like, I can see why I've, I don't know that much about it, but I've read like a little bit that there's like these links with like fascism and sort of like futurism as like having sort of like inevitability of like something going to happen. And there are some weird overlaps that maybe I don't want to go into about like how Silicon Valley investing or just like maybe venture capital investing in general happens of trying to like predict a particular future that the world is going to to move towards. And then he has this like very strange... Like he tries to mathematize history, I guess, in a certain way. Like this uh, was helical, like a helical theory of history or something like this. Um, that I also found very strange. So then it's like, it's like, oh, it there is this trajectory trajectory that we're going towards, and it's going to happen. But then he also like allows for like, oh, and also we're in this giant cycle of like you know, super cycles of like things that there I've always, I, I always come across these like weird kind of like hippie, like video type of stuff. Um, in, in the past of like, uh, you know, we're in, we're in these like 5,000 year super cycles of like things that are repeating themselves and, you know, whether or not there's any uh, merit to that, I don't really know. Um, but I thought it was strange. It was like this yeah. weird mixing of, I think you're on to a couple things there. I mean, the first is he very straightforwardly, I mean, his chapter two, three, two, I'm just looking at it here technological truth is the driving force of history. So driving force of history, <laughs> Which, like, we, there's a presumption <laughs> that there is a driving force of history, right? The as, though there's a, as though we believe in, you know, teleologies or something, mm -hmm. right? We're like Aristotelian here. Um, and then the other part of that, that technological truth part, that's just straightforward technocracy, um, good old fashioned technocracy. And that has, uh, you know, heaps of criticisms and, 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 and like limitations. Um, and, and so, and I guess, and you know, and what he's trying to get at this, this driving force, um, I mean, he makes lots of like, there's lots of sort of just in historical inaccuracies in, 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 in the account. And, and I don't, we don't really need to like go through those. Unfortunately, they're the kind of thing that um, if you're not aware of the inaccuracies, you know, the ideology is more, more most likely just kind of sweep over you and you're going to take it as accepted. Um, I mean, you know, he actually criticizes this, uh, he has this, uh, what is it, uh, Gell, uh, Gell-Man amnesia, uh, this concept of Gell-Man amnesia, which is actually, um, you know, it's such a, it's such a non-idea that it was, it was, uh, popularized, it was me, it was set, stated by Michael Crichton, the, um, the guy that wrote Jurassic Park, so not a scholar. Um, and, but the point of that is that when you are reading a, the, the idea of this, this amnesia is that when you're reading a, a piece of media um, that you are familiar with and you see it riddled with facts, the conclusion is that you should um, cast out the whole thing because it's just, you know, a, a pile of lies or whatever. And he was, he quite openly, um, he accuses like, you know, the New York Times of this, right? Um, as a, a historian of technology, I mean, that just accurately describes this book. It's riddled with facts. And, and so the kind of, it's very hard to take seriously. But that said, um, I think this idea of the, 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 the driving force, what he's trying to get at my hunch is, and this is this helical hit, uh, history. And he even calls it, he says, um, history can move through the Z axis or Z axis, right? And so he's interested in this very old fashioned idea that he kind of cribs from um, a number of thinkers, in, in, including um, uh, uh, people like Nietzsche, and um, where there's a, 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 a reciprocating nature to the world there's a there's an eternal return or something we, we we come back but he's not comfortable with that because right you know he's 
he's hard drive in Silicon Valley. That means Valley. stagnation if you go back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so he says, okay, so what we do is we think of this, um, the circle, but then let's like pull it into a, another dimension. Turn it into know, a slinky. <laughs> exactly. It's a slinky. It really is. It's a slinky. It's, it's, that's that Z axis he's, he's sort of, he, he, he wants to see. Um, you know, and, and, and there is, there, there is a lot of, uh, there's a fairly large tradition that's been, you know, properly, um, discounted at this point around, uh, cyclical histories, right? K waves and on and on and on. There's just like loads of books that have been written about trying to see the cyclical nature of, of history. And, and none of these have ever, no serious, no historian today really takes them seriously. Um, but Okay, so what can we get out of this? I will say the one thing that he's not completely wrong about is you mentioned this mathematization he's sort of interested in. I actually, I actually do believe that there is an opportunity for using um, mathematical models and large data sets that we see associated. We've got digital traces on the, you know, from from these. Um, uh, these systems interacting and, and individuals being taking part of them and so on and so forth to do proper, um, you know, sociological work, do some computational social science uh, with, with these data sets. I think that's actually right. So I think there's like interest in kind of um, getting um, some math in, uh, into the story is, is right. It's just that he offers us a bunch of options and no way to say we should take this approach or that approach or whatever. And more to the point, He's completely, he has no idea about all the literatures that actually do this kind of work. Um, there's loads of decades of work on online communities and within information science and information systems. And, you know, people have modeled the dynamics of these systems extensively, um, qualitative and quantitatively. And, you know, there's lots of important sociological things that have emerged out of that and issues that he doesn't seem to have any interest in, like, um, simple ones like trust or commitment, um, you know, legitimacy, uh, you know, just lots and lots of things that are as particular to a DAO or to a presumably a network state as they are to Wikipedia or Linux. And this has all been studied, but none of this, of course, is in here. Always start with a literature review if there's one thing that we're for. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I think that's quite interesting. And what resonates with me from what you've said is um, something that has been mentioned in previous episodes and I'd very much encourage people to go back and listen to some of the recordings in this series especially the first one and this idea of challenging the state by creating the same thing you know like to create a state against the structure of the state centers this statehood as as you've pointed out um, and I'm quite interested in thinking about you know, alternatives or kind of going through more of the uh, dynamics of what you sort of position Web3 as in your in your recent paper, which you mentioned in the intro in terms of um, a progressive Web3 from social co-production to digital polycentric governance. And so I think this practice of kind of talking about potential alternatives or alternative lenses um, is quite important. And so in that paper, you cast a different vision of Web3 than spin all the way down, which is one of the references in the, in the beginning. So how would you describe what is happening in blockchain communities through a social movement lens and why this idea of either anti-establishment or 
community network in some respect is kind of resonating with uh, Web3 people more broadly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, the first thing to say is I don't start from a position of, let's say, ideology, right? So um, I don't find it helpful just to say, well, I'm an anarchist and therefore I believe in these sorts of things. Um, Or I'm a socialist and I believe in these sorts of things. Um, Instead, that paper and, and I think the insight that would be most germane here is to recognize that we're not trapped into the kinds of conclusions that Balaji wants us to think that we're trapped. And the example I, and, you know, I, I, I really uh, uh, focus on in that paper, and, and it's in the title, uh, Digital Polycentric Governance. Polycentric governance, um, just to like say a few words about that, this is this idea that uh, was popularized um, by Eleanor Ostrom. She won a, a Nobel Prize in economics for her work on developing this idea of polycentric governance. It's actually her, her husband, Vincent Ostrom, that came up with the idea, but she did all this work around it. And um, polycentric governance has this sort of sound, this sounds like, oh, well, all we need to do is just like let, um, to use Glenn's, uh, Glenn, Glenn Wheel's term, plurality just kind of explode or whatever, right? And, and we'll, when this will kind of all work out. Uh, Ostrom says, no, 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 like that's not, we shouldn't expect polycentric governance to be easy or even efficient. Um, but rather what we have is an opportunity to think about nested, interlocking, multi-scalar uh, organizations that by the very nature that there are many of them and that they're nesting at multi-scalar and all these kinds of things, um, we can uh, observe in the real world, we can go out and like, this is what Ostrom did. She went around the world and, and did all these rich case studies to find examples of people coming together on their own volition, no, no outside exogenous force or state requiring them to come together, come together and escape the tragedy of the commons to escape these um contexts where we uh, if you know where otherwise we're going to over extract a resource or we're going to end up with pollution or we're going to end up with some kind of collective action challenge and you know there is no one simple answer to polycentric governance that's what makes it work it's not that there's one framework or one model it's a particular it's a context specific um uh, process and when I look at Web3, I see quite readily we've got digital commons. We've got these, we've got these uh, you know, tokens and cryptocurrencies that are produced. Um, they need to be managed. Uh, they need, you know, they have a, there's an economics to them. Um, and we actually have examples um, such as they are. Some of them are a little bit um, challenged at times of them being of these digital commons being well managed, well governed. As in other words, examples of real live examples, not fictitious ones like a, like a network state of effective polycentric uh, governance. And and I think that just is a, like that by itself, that the fact that people are able to do this um, makes this whole model seem really implausible because we have a, a completely uh, realistic option that I think everyone can get their head around, which is like, oh, well, we don't need to be rational egoists and all like we can actually... Um, step back and say, you know what, I'd be better off if I constrained myself, set up my own set of rules that, you know, made it so that I can't um, just abuse the commons 
And but we're all going to be better off. And as it turns out, people are more than ready to do that. That's not a it's not a, a fabrication. It's it's a it's an entirely real empirical phenomenon. So that he misses that entirely is, I think, striking. Yeah. So what I'm hearing you say is that what people are excited about is this capacity or potential to self-organize. And that really mm-hmm. comes back to the heart of, you know, public blockchains, you know, some of the kind of history of kind of community and ideology that they stem from in terms of the cypherpunks, but also, you know, I would say how they have evolved to, you know, much more kind of heterogeneous expressions from, you know, DAOs to DeFi to, you know, regenerative finance and so on. Um, and I like that um, starting point as well. I should say I'm an ethnographer, so I don't, I try not to start from an ideological standpoint and then peddle that either. I'm trying to understand, you know, what's going on here through the observation of the practices of people, you know, in their everyday, what do they tell you and, and what do they actually do? Um, and so just for the listeners that might find this a new concept, um, there's a, a paper um, called From Polyani to Ostrom, and that talks about, you know, three main features of polycentric systems as multiple centres of decision-making, an overarching, overarching set of rules. So one could think about that as um, an underarching set of rules in the case of a, an L1 blockchain protocol, um, and evolution through spontaneous competition among decision-making centres. And there's been some great um, scholarship in the blockchain space recently. Um, I'm thinking of Eric Alston on governance as conflict, but how through those interactions between parties or actors in the system, um, that's where you know decision-making and other processes of governance occur. Yeah, I think that's a good. I think that's a good summary and good starting point. And it's and you underline the importance of uh, of dispute, uh, of resolution, um, and the production of order. Right. That those are you know. And this is what we should assume. Not this. This isn't. Uh, this isn't the edge case. Uh, this is how polycentric governance works. Is through these um, you know dispute resolution types of mechanisms. So I think that's really, um, and that's that's just a form of self governance, right? Uh, that's that's how we that's how we get that self self governance uh, started, and it has the advantage, un- unlike um, the network state, is that it gives us a like a psychologically realistic model to think about, right? Like we don't have to. So um, just even step back a little further from like Ostrom's work and polycentric governance, it's part of this um, shift uh, that occurred in sort of the last 20, 30 years towards what's called neo-institutionalism and neo-institutionalism moves away from the focus from the last century on rationality, like egoistic rationality, the kind of like rational choice type of strong rationality, um, efficiency, efficacy, these kinds of issues. And instead it replaces that set of concerns with, um, the softer stuff. So neo-institutionalism thinks about legitimacy, trust, um, as I said, ordering, um, affect, you know, commitment. Commitment is a huge issue for all of these um, uh, mechanisms. Of course, we have high voice exit dynamics, right? So we need to think about that. We need to, you know, people are, there's, there's commitment becomes a really central um, key issue in ways that we all of a sudden we see rationality or even, I'll even say scarcity and um, other 
features we might associate with traditional economic rationality, those all kind of, you know, fade away in many respects, right? And, and I think when you start to take a very significant and serious look at not just Bitcoin, which is the clear focus here, um, it's, you know, it's borderline that Balaji knows anything but Bitcoin. But when you start to look at the broader crypto space, you see less economic uh, rationa rationality going on in much more socialization uh, and, and just other intrinsic reasons for participation, right? Um, we can start to think about style. We can start to think about uh, subcultural belonging. We can, you know, all of these are dimensions that, you know, on our new institutional model make sense and give us a, you know, a, a, a reasonable story as to how we might see the formation of, of, a, of a network state. Um, the only one that we maybe would have be able to pull out of Balaji's work, um, implicit in some of that work around, as, as mentioned before, um, world systems theory and this kind of stuff, is usually those accounts start from the division of labor. That's where Durkheim started with. And that's fine. I actually think that's a reasonable place to start with as a, when we start to think about um, the production of, of collectivities of individuals. The division of labor is a good place. We then need to start to take class very seriously, and class is completely absent here. So, um, you know, it's not like it doesn't help us any, but I think for the, the, the researcher who's not committed to the network state, that's a, a fine place to start. Yeah. I think it's, um, <clears throat> it's interesting that you bring up, you know, Eleanor Ostrom and sort of like this commons uh, theory as being a potential just like alternative place to look at that is, um, I guess, yeah, I guess looks at similar, similar types of questions that I guess the network state kind of tries to answer to or like the things that people are interested who are interested in the network state think that they're interested in act or what they are actually interested in, but then like, I think fall into the trap of the network states. Uh, I think that's interesting because uh, yeah, like as, as you mentioned before, like um, Balaji mentions DAOs, I think like two or three times, like throughout the book, it's not really yeah, not too many times. <laughs> it's not a huge thing in, in the network state when you would think that it would be like, I, I would have thought that it was going to be talking about DAOs and smart contracts as like being the things to handle bureaucratic processes, but it, doesn't at all it, do, it doesn't talk about yeah the sort of functionings of the state really much um and to your point about um uh you said like the new institutionalist framework like going at the more softer stuff and like subcultures it's almost like he you can tell that he has such a poor understanding of subcultures i guess by being like Whatever subculture you're in will make a network state about it. You know, if you're in the anti-FDA subculture aesthetic, <laughs> like that, you'll just want to live your entire life in that type of in type of world. Um, but I think at the same time, yeah. I, I don't know if it's like a, a just having an insane amount of wealth. Like I, I imagine in his head, he's probably like, oh well. If if I'm tired of my anti-FDA network state, I'll just go and you know I'll be a citizen of my know other network state of this other thing that i like you know it's yeah very strange i i don't actually have a problem with this idea that we can just imagine everyone doesn't have everyone is rich and has no material um challenges you know we I, i'm actually world. fine with that <laughs> we, we can just we can just start with we're digital or whatever right and and just black box the the fleshiness of my human reality i'm, I'm actually kind of okay with that it's just that, as you sort of suggest, like, 
Well, he, for instance, he, he, he come, he has this, um, screed against, uh, woke about woke oh ideology, God. right? <laughs> Yeah, wokeism has uh, infested every single institution <laughs> across yeah. the globe, and we yeah. were surrounded, Plus, being forced into wokeism. It's just, it's just a how I don't understand. Like, what world do you live in <laughs> where you believe this? I don't know. I don't know. I, I mean, it's one I think that reads too many bad newspapers. But <laughs> the, the, what what gets me is um, he clearly just doesn't like woke people or whatever. Right? There's there's the other thing on, on implied in all whatever of this, that means. There's a hard boiled masculinity throughout this book, right? Like straight up, like women aren't part of it. I mean, he uses the mask. He, he uses men. Um, I mean, and whatever that might be rhetoric, but I think actually just reading it, you get the sense of a hard boiled masculinity. Like this is testosterone dripping in testosterone in this account, right? Maybe I want to be the charismatic founder of my own network state guys. <laughs> Kelsey is a girl boss. Actually. <laughs> the thing I don't get about wokeness and his, his screed against it is that that actually, I think is a paradigmatic example that he should um, be like leveraging like the woke ideology, whether you think it's uh, great or terrible, it's effective, right? He, so he, it's weird. He takes this highly effective networked media saturated phenomenon, right? And which you would think would be the fabrication of like, that's the basis of a network state. I would almost think, right? If this is, this is the idea of, we have these high alignments coming together, but just because he can't get over himself, he's like, well, we got to dunk on wokeism. And I think actually the opposite. He should have been, he should be saying, look, I think woke is stupid, but that's a great example of a proto network state. You know, it's people coming together for all these various reasons. And we could talk, we could articulate what that all might be, right? But he doesn't do any of that. To be, I think he does mention at one point, like the wokes could like, uh, become decentralized, or not or that wokes are decentralized, but they could become uh, more more like the crypto people, basically, if if they had wanted to, if they knew how to do it. But um, I don't know. I mean, it's definitely, in my view, like he, it's very he uses like the trick of threes, like where like here are the two like seemingly opposing forces out there in the world, and here is this third one that nobody's really thought about, but is actually growing and we should join it and you know this is the only good option um which is yeah you have the ccp nyt btc which is like i don't know just like a a obscene oversimplification (laughs) and this is what makes it difficult because it's hard to is when you're dealing with entities that are so abstract he uses he talks about left and right but also the left is the is right and right is left actually exactly (laughs) And this should just be a, a probably a good flag that we're not dealing with anything that's um, attached to reality because we don't know what to make sense. I don't know how to make sense of this. Like what kind of distinctions can I draw from something that is like it is and it isn't the same thing, right? I mean, are, are, this just sounds like sort of tautological um, opinion making. Hi, everyone. If you're enjoying this episode so far, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, share with a friend, and join the crypto leftist communities on Discord or Reddit, which you can find links to in the show notes. If you're enjoying the episode or find the content and big important, you can pitch into my efforts starting at $3 a month on patreon.com slash the blockchain socialist to help me out. As a patron, you get a shout out on an episode and access to bonus content like Q&A episodes where you can submit and vote on questions you'd like me to answer, and I'll give my thoughts in roughly 20 minutes. In the last bonus episode, I analyzed applying an anti-capture framework made for DAOs, but towards left-wing organizing. 
Of course, I'll still be making free content like this episode to help spread the message that crypto doesn't need to be used to further entrench capitalist exploitation if we put our efforts into it. So if that message resonates with you, I hope you'll consider helping out. So coming back to this perspective about Ostrom and the idea of kind of voluntary organization rather than a coercive state and governance of the commons or, or common pool resources, how do you translate that theory to a Web3 or a blockchain-based context? As we've pointed out, that hasn't really been done in terms of like what are the bits and pieces that create, you know, a network state. Um, and one of my observations is, you know, the importance of context. Like in the studies that Ostrom did, you know, they're very, very context-dependent. So how do you pass that, um, I guess, to Quinn and and how do you translate that to a blockchain-based setting? Hmm. Yeah, that I mean, I think you're you're onto something there. The voluntary nature of it, um, I, I think, and I think we can draw on Balaji a little, a little bit here, is he, is he does recognize the the need for you know this alignment of individuals. Um, that's what he calls it, right? Um, I, I I think that's necessary for when we have these voluntary participatory networks of, of people, but we need to other, we need to think about all the other characteristics that go into um, uh, human beings. So senses of belonging, right? That's important. Um, I, I have to feel like I'm, I belong to something. If we take that um, social movement lens, we then can think about collective identity, right? If I belong, if I'm a, a, a boy scout leader, well, that's part of my collective identity. Uh, and and how do I go about getting that? Do I start with that collective identity or do I get it later as part of some indoctrination process or, or whatever it might be? Um, you know, I mentioned before issues of commitment and there's just there's just a whole host of, um, I think, uh, social and psychological factors that are both. And, and the other important thing to keep in mind is we've got structural factors, infrastructural um, issues, as well as intrinsic um, uh, you know, motivations, right? Uh, and, and, and we need to have a story that can make sense of, of both of these, right? Of, of, of the macro and the micro. Uh, and there's lots of good work out there that does these kinds of, these sorts of issues. And these are fundamental challenges that economists, for instance, deal with. And, and, and Balaji kind of like, he sort of crashes up against this and he realizes the, I mean, he just gives up. He says, well, I can't talk about both, structural and micro and he just focuses on one i mean his his theory of history i mean calls it he's very focused on micro history is what he calls right and this is that story that he offers he says well all we need to do is we just need to take facts or history and he doesn't even say facts he says history as the, some nebulous abstract thing and put that on a specifically bitcoin blockchain and that'll that'll give us our verified history that can never change or whatever I mean, that's the whole thing kind of doesn't make sense because uh, first, like, what are these facts? I mean, he's he's so critical of, of mainstream media, right? He says, oh, New York Times is nothing but lies. So at the very least, all we can expect a blockchain to record would be the lies of the New York Times, right? I mean, that's, I think, all we can expect. But I think the more substantial point, what he completely misses is a, there's a subtle move and I've written in, uh, in the past about this uh, um, a few times. I have this article with, with Bill Maher um, on, in King's Review that opens up the question around basically the production of facts 
in blockchain systems in particular. If we take a slightly more what's called a social constructivist view, less of a realist view of uh, of the world, it, uh, we can see that what makes blockchains kind of so interesting with regard to history or to facts is that it is the blockchain itself that makes the fact. It's not like facts are external and then they get, you know, verified. They, it's, and, and the two features, I mean, I, I'll just kind of point out to get, this is a little bit heady, but uh, there's, a, there's a theorist by the name of Bruno Latour, and he has this idea of immutable mobiles. And I think actually blockchains kind of work like immutable mobiles for the following reason. First of all, um, so immutable mobiles, the idea is that you've got this interaction between something that's mobile, it's, it's circulation, it moves, and then of course, immutable, it's, 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 it doesn't, it's static, right? And it's precisely the tension between there that that's how facts get produced. And so in the case of blockchains, well, immutable, we've, we know immutable, that's the blocks after, you know, they, they get sealed up and they become immutable. Okay, check, we got that. Okay, that's great. And mobile, well, that's the economy, that's the circulation of the tokens. And what's interesting is through those, that dual process, we produce facts because it, after time, we just have to take that, you know, blockchain as authoritative. Like this is how we get authority, right? Um, and so it doesn't actually much matter if that fact was like, speak, strictly speaking, true or false or whatever. It just becomes true by being immutable and being, by being, and by being mobile. And there is loads and loads and loads of research in uh, science and technology studies talking about particularly science, scientific and technological artifacts as producing facts. Um, you know, there's, I could, yeah, cite books and books that have, have sort of demonstrated this very uh, reliable, robust uh, uh, kind of result in science. And, and if you have a passing sense of uh, like modern science today, you get the idea, right? I mean, most of the facts that science is, scientists talk about today are not things that exist out in the real world in any meaningful sense. We're, we're, we just produce them with the instruments that we, we have. Um, and so blockchain being um, a, a different, a social uh, form of very much the same kinds of things that we see happening from, uh, you know, scientific labs uh, across to universities, to other in spaces of innovation. Yeah, I'm very much into that idea of, you know, blockchains as socio-technical infrastructures. And um, perhaps I'll add something that came out yesterday. I'll send it to to put in the show notes about, you know, Web3 as, as infrastructures. But you coined the phrase um, digital common pool resources in the paper. Would you like to explain um, that concept in a little more context? Sure. The, in the insight is that, um, well... There's two insights. One that I think it's meaningful to try to rehabilitate this Ostrom-esque polycentric governance framework because it makes sense of a lot of the sorts of things that we see happening. Right? We see polycentrism in you know out there in the world, and we we can at least gives us some sort of dynamics to think about. Right? So so we've got uh, common pool resources that are inherited from this framework of polycentric governance. Now, a common pool resource is, uh, is, is a unique kind of resource because it's not a public resource and it's not a private resource. It's sort of in between. And if you go to Wikipedia, you'll see this great little, um, you know, two by two box that, uh, 
that shows how uh, goods can be rivalrous and excludable. And um, common pool resources are, they sit in the interesting category of, let me see if I get this right, being not excludable, but being rivalrous. Uh, this is, and this is, so we see lots of examples in the, you know, good old fashioned world of common pool resources, um, like a fishing stock, right? So we have to manage the fishing, fishing, um, the fish in the, the, the lake, uh, because if we over extract them, you know, we're gonna have a population collapse and all these sorts of bad things. And, um, so how do we now make sense of that in web three? Well, things are different. First of all, we're dealing with digital uh, column pool resources. They're not material. And so one of the big issues you have emerging with uh, traditional column pool resources is crowding or congestion, right? You, If you have too many people coming to a resource, you, you know, effectively you can just bump up against one another. And so that's something you kind of have to manage. In the digital realm, of course, that's not an issue because these are just digital constitutive things we've made up, right? There are, we only have artificial scarcity. Um, but what we do have instead is, for instance, we have scaling scaling problems. So crowding associated with common pool resources becomes scaling associated with digital common pool resources. And I think there's actually a whole whack of other dynamics we can probably pull out and start to think about how the digital nature is different. So another important one is on blockchain systems, um, security monitoring and surveillance are effectively, you get them for free. That is not the case in most uh, traditional polycentric governance situations. You, uh, one of the challenges uh, of one of the downsides about polycentric governance is that it's inefficient and costly because you, you every single little polycentric unit needs to hire their own surveillance team, their own um, you know monitoring and security uh, uh, apparatuses. Uh, we don't actually have such. The problems like that in blockchain, um, you know, we get all that security kind of for free. Uh, now, that's not it's not absolute security. The other important thing to kind of be aware of, and, and actually Balaji completely misses it um, in his discussion of history. He seems to think that if it's on a uh, if it's on a, a Bitcoin blockchain, it's anonymous and secure. Um, there is at, at this point, um, if you have if, if you're relatively up on. Uh, de-anonymization techniques uh, and other kinds of attacks on these blockchains, you'll appreciate that um, none of these are secure, fully secure systems. And I can point to lots and lots of examples. Even just Wired Magazine has been running articles, uh, mostly uh, discussing the use of chain analysis. Is, um, uh, it's called a reactor tool, I think. Um, and it systematically de-anonymizes and clusters uh, supposedly... Uh, pseudonymous accounts and tracks people down and they're making arrests all the time um, around the world. Uh, child porn rings are getting taken down. Uh, money launderers getting taken down. Terrorists are getting taken down. Um, I have an old joke. I spoke with a, a FINRA intelligence agent years ago, like 2014 kind of type thing. And I asked him what they thought about Bitcoin at the time. And he said, you know, Quinn, we don't, we don't have a problem with blockchain. We just think it's prosecution futures. 
and, and he turned out he's right. He was right. Today it is. They're now they're just it's just prosecution futures, right? Um, and uh, you know, obviously that's a compl- there's a complicated story there. There are systems that are more secure and less secure, and these kinds of things. And we can you know make systems secure, and we can improve the security and all these kinds of things. But I think that's one of the important ways that we're dealing with a a distinctly different um, infrastructure. And so we need to. Uh, take the lessons that we get from common pool resources, but update them for a new digital environment. And I, that's just, a, I think, a research project um, that we all sort of have to face. Yeah. And if you're not planning to do anything illegal, you can just look at the cyber security kind of vulnerabilities, you know, subscribe to RECT, R-E-K-T, and, and see them kind of come through daily in terms of hacks or things that have occurred just of different genes. It's so weird, like, um, I don't know, the, his, I think he called it crypto history is like this new form of technical truth, I think. Uh, it just comes off as very, uh, it's a weird like STEM, STEMI thing, like STEM superiority uh, thing that I get sometimes. Like, there's this weird, I think I've talked about it before, but like a weird kind of um, like aestheticization of like, oh, whether you studied STEM or whether you studied social science that I find very silly and yeah, he's definitely sort of coding, coding STEM people as being like freedom fighters that are going to progress the world into the future, which has a you know a right wing tinge to it, of course. I don't, and I don't have any. I actually, um, you know, I, I think uh, uh, drawing significant focus on you know technical infrastructure is really important. Um, I, I, I don't think that's wrong. Um, I would actually be much more satisfied with his book if if, if he had of um, went and did you know an, a rigorous empirical or statistical study of these kinds of networks. Um, that that's uh, but that I think that would actually uh, be that would that, that wouldn't be have that wouldn't have uh, sold so well in the crypto world maybe no <laughs> amongst crypto people. <laughs> yeah. So maybe um, coming back to what you call a progressive web three you mentioned that um it must address three much more um difficult criticisms and you know these are not really issues that are um covered in the network state so i'm interested in your perspective of them and then perhaps after that we can talk about you know how existing web three also even though it's not a network state you know doesn't necessarily live up to this in all respects but you talk about financialization, assetization, and quantification. Number two, commodity fetish, fetishism. And number three, digital inequality. Those are just three examples. I think that we need to focus on if we want to imagine a progressive Web3. And why, why I highlighted them is because they also, they replace three criticisms that you typically see. Um, one, uh, uh, you see a criticism of technology, not in Balaji, but um, people like uh, Columbia, David Columbia, he, he, you know, he says, well, uh, or David Gerard, and they'll criticize, and they'll say the, the technology is not ready or whatever. Um, you know, that's a fine criticism, but that's like a, you know, these, that's just solved in a, a version upgrade, right? So that's not a real criticism. Um, culture, another one is culture or, or, or uh, ideology or beliefs and things like this, right? Uh, many people who are kind of new to the space, you know, maybe they heard about Bitcoin just a couple of years ago or something like that, really fail to appreciate the tremendous 
change that has occurred over the first decade. Now, I actually think Balaji is a little bit um, unaware of some of this change as well. Uh, you know, if, if you've been involved in Web3 in the last year, it's unrecognizable. The people involved, their interests, the um, interactions, that's completely unrecognizable to when I started in investigating Bitcoin in 2012. Yeah. I wonder if he actually participated in a DAO. I'd be fascinated to know, like, what DAOs is he a part of where he's in the forums and voting? I'm sure he's never... I mean, I imagine he's, he might've like voted, you know, with a bunch of tokens that he got from a venture capital investment or something like that. But well, so this is a good point of, so, um, Kelsey, you asked me to sort of think about, um, some of the challenges. Okay. So, uh, maybe, maybe then, so I replaced those three. So technology, culture, and, uh, oh gosh, what's the third one? I mean, it doesn't matter. Um, the, the point is that we have these more substantial, difficult political economic challenges, right? Um, inequality. Everybody, if you look at uh, who owns crypto today, you know, it's really, really highly, uh, uh, you know, unequal, right? Um, how do we solve that? Well, there's lots of potential design solutions. There's, you know, whatever. There's, I mean, we can think of, um, there's progressive coins out there that are trying to do neat stuff. Some of it's misguided, some of it's awesome, whatever. Um, and other kinds of, uh, of issues, thinking about commodity fetishism. So we tend to think that the thing itself has some value in it. Some of this is that gold bug kind of stuff that we see with Bitcoin. Um, you know, and, and there's any number of political economic kinds of concerns we can, uh, we can think about. And we need, to res- we need to sort of resolve these. Um, but the, real, the reality you, you mentioned, okay, so how, do, how does Web3 actually do this? This isn't actually what we see quite with web three today, web three is very inchoate. It's often, you know, people say, oh, it's just a subreddit with a, with a bank account. And that's not like far off. Uh, We're not necessarily dealing with super sophisticated governance here. We're not dealing with super sophisticated dispute resolution. Um, We're dealing with a whole bunch of different attempts at it. And I think in that plurality and that sort of there's, that's where that vibrancy comes. Um, But the reality is, is somewhat different in web three. And here's a, a, a fact I would kind of like to throw out there to think about. If you look at the voting, on-chain voting, go to snapshot.org and look at um, uh, the sort of who who does all the voting, you have these delegative voting uh, mechanisms in in Web3. So um, I can take my tokens, my governance tokens, and I can send them over to Kelsey and she can, you know, uh, represent me in some sense or whatever. In Web3, what we actually see is a massive um, centralization and glomeration of delegate voting focused on one particular entity, AZ-16, the Silicon Valley venture capitalists. They have a massive uh, presence in Web3 space, and, the gov- and they, they are the governors. No, but they're decentralized. So- <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> so I sort of tell the story about like, you know, this is like, it's prefigured of this is something like a web three, we're not we don't have a progressive web three. Uh, we have the makings of a progressive web three, as we believe, but we don't have one not today. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I've actually written about that as well in Charles Babbage interfaces. I did a ethnography, which was awesome with an amazing community called friends with benefits that does web three for creatives. Um, but yeah, their community was in this kind of 
yeah, moment of sort of realization and discussion about the role of, of Silicon Valley, Valley investors in, in, yeah, buying up tokens, which was really interesting. Yeah. Um, and just to your point about, oh, sorry, go on. Well, I just wanted to highlight also Balaji's, um, I know you talked a little bit about this on um, uh, the, the, the episode with um, Prima and, and, Glenn, and Glenn Wheel, um, the idea of this, uh, of this need for a founder. Uh, this is something that it's really clear that Balaji is playing from the same book playbook as, as AZ 16 and, 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 uh, AZ 16 has this influential, uh, blog post called, uh, is the decentralization playbook. And it's very fascinating to read because what you re- realize by, by reading is they say, okay, what you need, they, they sort of t- tell the story of like, so you want to start a DAO or you want to start a, like a decentralized crypto or whatever. Um, the first thing you're going to run into, as we all know, is like, how are you going to get the users and how are you going to keep the users and how are you going to get like some strategic vision and how are you going to get all that energy and all that kind of stuff. And they say, well, what you need is a, a, a core founder who needs to get some venture capital and then progressively decentralize. And that's an interesting model, but by no means is it that the only model or even remotely the best model. And more to the point, we actually have lots of anthropological evidence that that's not how people come together. They never have. And, and a lot of like what Balaji has is he uses words like tribes and things like this a lot, right? Has this imagination of this Hobbesian sort of world where we have humans running around with sticks and, you know, they're hunting dinosaurs or whatever they're doing. Um, no anthropological record indicates this, right? Humans have always been social. There's no such thing as um, a, a human that's abstracted from that. And so that's to say, we don't need, we don't have, there's not, that's not how nations build, are built. They don't start with some founder who's like, I'm going to stand up and speak for the people. Nations don't start that way. And other collective collectivities don't start that way. The history throughout, the only ones that do are fascistic or, you know, otherwise totalitarian. And so that's the model he's interested in. He's interested in the one where has this one central figure. And but that's the aberration. That's not the normal. Yeah. What is absolutely insane to me, actually, because uh, I'm writing a piece um, for Outland at the moment. But uh, I, I did a little bit of research. I didn't. I have not really read Hobbes much at all. But I found out that it's it, it's just like very ironic that he would actually use like Hobbes like to for for this concept because Cobbs Hobbes had um he he wrote that kind of like this brutal or brute situation or state of nature of like the war of all against all that like humans were like naturally like animalistic and they would kill each other but the only way that to sort of prevent that is by a strong undivided govern government and so his like he is really into libertarianism like he's i mean it, it's clear in other things he's talked about and throughout the book but like fundamental to his framework is like this guy the philosopher who is like really really into big government <laughs> like really really into the states and probably like loves the fda or whatever because it keeps people from uh, injecting themselves with weird uh, potions or something <laughs> Yeah, well, he probably hates the FDA, but I actually think the Hobbes. The, oh, I was saying Hobbes, Hobbes. Hobbes probably loved the F, would would love the FDA. Well, Hobbes, yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah. yeah. The the turn to Hobbes is probably because Balaji is either scared of the possibility of just um, cl- like masses self organizing, 
um, or just doesn't see it as realistic or something. He had a failure of imagination, one way to put that. Uh, the Hobbes story is really kind of a problematic one because, um, you know, it, 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 it requires uh, this imagination of a situation where uh, we really are stuck. And the only way out of being stuck, because we're these rational egoists who are going to murder each other, um, a very sad vision of what a human is, 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 to, is to give away the one thing that I think Balaji values the most, our liberty. Give it away to the, to the sovereign, right? Um, and, and to go back to my sort of earlier point around polycentric governance, we have lots of examples um, that show us that that's not necessary. We don't need to assume um, uh, uh, this characterization. And, you know, we don't even need to be abstract or uh, fancy in our theory about it. We can actually just point to lots of good examples where uh, we have collectivities coming together and there's no, there's no uh, Leviathan at all. And Quinn, to that point, we don't even need to look beyond Web3 for those examples of polycentricity. You know, for example, we're already seeing in DAOs um, overarching kind of governance layers and sub-DAOs with that, you know, those multiple sort of centres of decision-making power and governance occurring, you know, in the interactions between, you know, different, you know, functions in a system. But, you know, I, I would also point out that they're not, perfectly efficient or effective in their current form either. Yeah, I think that's right. I don't have anything other to say that. That, that sounds absolutely right. <laughs> I think you nailed it. So the next book could be going and doing more empirical research on these things that are actually already occurring, which we're working on. Yeah, yeah. well, and I think that goes all the way back to sort of where I started. And that, that's one of the things that makes the network state so frustrating to talk about is it is clearly a piece of rhetoric and ideology. Um, and like, that's fine. I, 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 uh, my, my essay on, on Progressive 3 is also meant to um, support a, a, a vision of the world. It, it has a rhetorical component to it. So I, th- I don't have any, any problem with that. It's, um, I, I guess the, my, what, what I find so dissatisfying uh, about the book is that other than a few references to some of the things we see with Bitcoin, but even there, we don't see, you know, we don't see any of the major kinds of discussion points that we would have expected to see even with, with Bitcoin. Um, uh, we have very little uh, empirical grounding in blockchain and crypto in the network state. Like he, he talk, he's talking about the interaction between Tesla and the Chinese state and New York Times and the United States and woke people and all these kinds of things, right? But very rarely does he end up talking about, um, you know, for instance, the Ethereum merge, a massive, unprecedented success story in governance and change management such that I mean, it's really impressive what the merge did. It reduced the energy consumption of Ethereum by 99.95%. They swapped out effectively the engine while the car was driving down the road. That is, um, you know, whether you think Ethereum's great or terrible, that's just something to think about. And like, that's that's very impressive. Where then we, on, the, on the flip side, of course, we've got Bitcoin continuing to sort of, you know, flounder and not really be able to get their governance sorted out and 
you know, and, and really respond to the kinds of criticisms that they, they need to be responding to. But none of this is in this, in, in the network state. Like, and we don't even have um, analytical or even intuitive, like on ramps to have these discussions. Like, I don't know what I would, how I'd be able to talk about the scaling debate and Bitcoin um, and vis-a-vis the network state. He doesn't offer us any um, sort of story there, right? There's, there's no, certainly no design patterns for that. But moreover, there's like, there's just hardly no mention of it. And so I think that's kind of like the, uh, the really, you know, it's a very frustrating part of, part of the book. Um, and it, it makes it just so much wishing and hope, hopefulness. And I would much rather read a book that actually talked about uh, the reality of the situation and then offer some, you know, suggestions and points for how we, maybe we can get to a, a new world <clears throat> and in a, a network state. Some of the parts are good. I, 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 I think it's interesting to think about um, land, actual materialities. Uh, I think it's interesting. He talks a little bit about how one can, how you can have um, all these different kinds of, network states, these archipelagos, that sort of sounds like a polycentrism. We've got alignment of interests. I think that's interesting too. But uh, none of these have anything to do, unfortunately, with crypto. And so we're kind of a bit of a loss. Yeah, I think um, the network states definitely sort of like what, what it brings to mind, if I were to see the concept, the network state written, you know, in golden letters in front of me, I would like immediately come to mind uh, thinking about digital governance, like using networks like the internet for digital governance um, that sort of solve this problem of of the nation state being kind of like uh, both too big and too small. We talked about in, in in the first episode for a lot of different types of problems and trying to find you know some some kind of medium or some kind of uh, uh, yeah just alternative to to answers for those really big problems that that require a lot of coordination and a lot of uh, thinking about solving. But I think Balaji is so obsessed with this, with, with exits and is so obsessed with kind of not having governance. I think maybe his position as a very, very rich person, he probably finds governance as something that's very annoying. He is probably wanting to Mm -hmm. deal everything, uh, deal with everything that he probably usually does with his, with his, with his money. Um, And when you have that type of capital, then you are able to do so. I just wanted to um, highlight something that sort of slipped my mind. I think it's a very important feature of more generally polycentric governance that we should, and it's the kind of thing that we should see in Balaji's story, which is the following. Um, He talks a lot about, you know, the evils of the Soviet, uh, you know, empire and all this sorts of um, uh, thing. But what he misses is one of the central challenges of, uh, or one of the key challenges of central planning, as we sort of we sort of know, is that uh, when you have a, hi- a hierarchical model, um, you end up with a kind of an epistemological issue. So the centrally planned nation state has um, a lot of has masses, it has all the citizens, uh, there's all these minds at the sort of edge of the network, and they all have private information. I have private information about the road condition on my street um, that the people over in City Hall or even further, the you know federal legislative buildings in Canada 
they there's an epistemological gap there. They have no understanding of the road, the condition of the roads at, at, at you know at my house. And how can they? Because there's just too much um, hierarchy between me and them. And this is a limitation. This is a limitation because in our highly complex world, uh, you know, the, a world that embraces networks, we in fact have lots of interesting opportunities to. Uh, uh, fix these this this epistemological challenge, and we can kind of turn it on ahead or his head and go bottom up. And so this is the idea behind self governance. If we are able to um, use some information infrastructures, in particular, we've got markets and auctions and and other um, you know kinds of polycentric governance mechanisms that we can support. We'll be able to, or the idea is. Uh, collect the private information from the edges of the network and then put them into these little polycentric uh, uh, um, interlocking multi-scalar uh, systems. And that is how we can get not centralized top-down authority, but rather bottom-up authority and bottom-up um, you know, uh, awareness of the individual preferences and context that people uh, live in. And, and, and I think I would think for Balaji, being a strong libertarian, it's emphasis on those individual preferences that I think should be such a compelling reason to discard that hierarchical model. Um, be, because my preferences necessarily are not gonna be taken into consideration by the federal government because they have no way of knowing my preferences. A bottom-up polycentric model it does. There is an opportunity for me to express that. I can express it through my governance token. I can express it through lots of different ways of belonging and engagement in these sorts of networks. Um, so I actually think like a libertarian ought to reject this model on epistemological grounds alone. It's, it's, it's rooted in the 1950s, which we just know is a world that one, we don't live in anymore. And two, just kind of wasn't too effective. Yeah. Uh, I hope the libertarians listening uh, take that to heart. <laughs> yeah, thanks so much for coming on. I highly encourage people to look into the uh, progressive framework for Web3 that you lay out in your paper and give it a look, especially if you are, you know, someone who wants to like move crypto away from kind of the, the mess that it is at the moment. Um, there are some considerations to think about, you know, if uh, Quinn's paper is the the progressive framework. Then Balaji's is certainly a kind of right wing libertarian one. And um, you know, in a world that covets decentralization, maybe it's time that we start thinking about different centers of of thinking or logics uh, to to apply this technology in ways that yeah, just would would sound better than a network state at the moment <laughs> in my eyes. So yeah, thanks so much, Quinn, and thanks a lot, Kelsey, for for co-hosting with me. Grateful for the conversation. Thanks. Thank you, Bill.